today is that my voice has not been coming through. I woke up this morning, uh, so I've had some extra help and support. Thank you, and uh, Lord willing, it'll hold up. If it doesn't, Timothy's my backup to step in. I'd like to start the sermon today with a riddle. It cannot be seen, cannot be felt, cannot be heard, cannot be smelt. It lies behind stars and under hills, and empties holes it fills. It comes first and follows after, ends life, and kills laughter. Now, while you're trying to parse this out, you might know this comes from a book written by J.R.R. Tolkien. In the fifth chapter of The Hobbit, the chapter is entitled Riddles in the Dark. And this is part of a game that's going on between the hobbit Bilbo and this creature named Gollum. So Bilbo has ventured down deep into the mountains, into the caves, and into the darkness where he meets this creature named Gollum, and they have this game of riddles they play back and forth as Bilbo's deal to try to escape having his life taken. In our text today, Nicodemus is going through what might be a similar feeling of those riddles in the dark. In the Gospel of John, it seems that whenever someone asks Jesus a question, he answers with a riddle. Not that Jesus is really telling riddles, but to the people who are listening, it seems that he is. For Nicodemus, the things Jesus is telling do not add up. The question Nicodemus wants answered is, What does it mean to be born again? And Jesus seems to have left him more puzzled than when he began. When Jesus reveals heavenly wisdom to creatures like us on earth, it comes across to us like a riddle, something we can't understand and leaves us groping about in the dark. It reminds me of the book of Job. In Job chapter 28, Job is, has a poem, He's, and the poem is about searching for wisdom. It describes wisdom as a person journeying down into the caves deep into the earth. It describes wisdom as a search for gold or silver. You create channels into the earth, and you search out to find those riches But as you go deeper and deeper, you find it just gets darker and darker. And so he says, surely there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Finally, Job says that only God understands this wisdom. Only God knows his place. And to man, he says, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. So the true wisdom that Jesus wants us to discover today is the fear of the Lord, which is, begins with us not having the answers. Jesus says you must be born again. 
And Nicodemus answers, how can this be? This is a good question, and it's one we might all ask. In fact, the phrase born again, to me, leaves us all quite puzzled. Even the meaning of the phrase is understood differently by different Christians. The phrase has been popularized by many American Christians and pastors and even politicians to talk about what it means to be Christian. The emphasis is placed usually then on a personal experience, a conversion moment or a decision in which your life changes from the old sinful ways to a new way of following Jesus. Now for us as Lutherans, we tend to shy away from that because it can be subjective. And we would emphasize more the objective gospel promise. Now Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I see in what Jesus is saying both answers. On the one hand, Lutherans might emphasize water as the baptism promise, which is objective and true and washes you and brings you into God's kingdom. But then Baptists might emphasize born of the spirit, which is within us, in our heart, the spirit coming upon us and changing us. And perhaps Jesus means both. But in any case, we still don't know how this can happen. Has it happened for me? Am I really born again? Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were part of a religious movement that were trying to answer a lot of tough religious questions. The Pharisees emerged from the destruction of the Temple of Solomon at a time when the people were scattered and the wars had caused the Jewish people to live in all sorts of different mixed cultures and communities, mixed religions and practices. And so they began establishing synagogues in all these local cities. In order to keep the people unified in the teachings of Moses, they would make little churches in the towns. And the people who became the leaders of those churches were the priests, who were then later known as rabbis. The rabbis were the instructors and those who were in charge of teaching the local people on the local level. They also had power in the synagogue, in the uh, high council, which was in Jerusalem, called the Sanhedrin. By the end of the first century, the Pharisees, as one group within that movement, had most of the control in Jerusalem and on the high council. So as John is writing late into the first century, he's think, looking back on Jesus' life and also thinking about how influential the Pharisees were because of their influence on the local synagogues and in Jerusalem. John is writing in order to help us see the significance of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is placed in the midst of four cultural symbols that John brings up right at the beginning. He talks about things that are, would be important to a Jewish community. The first is a wedding. We talked about that last week, the wedding of Cana. The second is the temple. The third is the rabbi. And the fourth is a well, which we'll have next week. 
Here you have the rabbi, the one who's supposed to be in charge of instructing and interpreting the law of Moses. And Nicodemus is representing the Pharisees, which is an even stricter understanding, a higher scholarship of what God's law says. And yet this rabbi doesn't know what Jesus is talking about. He doesn't know what it means to be born again. So just because a person is educated or because a person is religious or because a person comes across as very pious and good does not mean that they understand Jesus. In fact, Nicodemus is coming at night because he's afraid. He's afraid of what it'll mean to go to Jesus, to meet with Jesus. And Jesus gives a stark warning at the very end of this conversation, whether it's Jesus or John writing this, I don't know. He says, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Many of the priests and rabbis at this time were walking in darkness because they weren't ready to expose their own wickedness, their own evil. To let that be seen and let Jesus expose that was fearful for them, so they remained in darkness. In all humility, Jesus is telling us we need to step out of the darkness and into the light. And know that when we do so, it's going to expose us. It's going to expose our motivations. It's going to expose the evil that we've done or thought or desired. It's going to expose us, but in the end, it's going to bring to light the goodness that God is working in us. Jesus wants to show Nicodemus what this means, and what it means is to be born again. But really, that's not what Jesus says. In fact, I think Lutherans and Baptists might be able to be a bit relieved if they would just abandon this phrase, born again, and look at what Jesus is actually saying. In fact, in Greek, the word can mean born again, but the first meaning of what Jesus is saying is born from above. Later on, this word comes up again in verse 31, when it says, he who comes from above is above all. It's, it's said in this same context of coming from above in contrast to coming from below. He continues, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So the phrase born again is more properly understood as born from above. Born from above means to remember where Jesus has come from. 
The whole purpose of Jesus' narrative here with Nicodemus and the purpose of John's gospel is to show us where Jesus has come from. He is the word which was with God, the word which was God, and the word which came down, descended, and became man. He came from above, and so his spirit comes from above. The spirit comes from above and comes into your heart, which means that the source of your life is more important than the timing of it. More important than you figuring out the timing of being born again from this to that is the source of being born again, which is not chronological, it's geographical. How does this happen, that we can be born from above? Well, I have another riddle for you, another one of Bilbo's riddles. Voiceless, it cries. Wingless, it flutters. Toothless, bites. Mouthless, mutters. We're still trying to figure out the first one. Now I've given you another one. The answer to this one is the wind. Voiceless, it cries. Wingless, it flutters. Toothless, bites. Mouthless, mutters. Jesus uses this illustration of the wind to demonstrate that the conversion of the heart is not to be pinpointed. It's not in terms of a systematic program. It's not in terms of a magic ritual. And it's not in terms of a manipulation of an altar call. Instead, it is something from above. And we don't know where the wind comes from. And we can't pinpoint where it goes, but what we do notice is when it's there. We hear it. We feel it. It's around us. It's moving. It's making noise. It's making an impression. It blows where it wishes. We don't decide when the Spirit comes, when the Spirit goes. We don't get to put the spirit in a bottle for later. The wind comes from above and returns there. And this is what the Pharisees were missing. They were lost in these riddles in the dark because they had no light. Jesus specifically says that unless you are born from above, you cannot see the kingdom. That the whole point of what Jesus is trying to open our eyes to is seeing something that we never saw before. They don't see the kingdom because the kingdom is a mystery to them. And he uses this picture. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So, the mystery is just as mysterious as that serpent in the wilderness. When the people were journeying through the wilderness in numbers, they come to an event where they complain, they grumble, and God sends poisonous serpents into their camp. They get bit, they get sick, and many of them die. The Lord tells Moses to make a bronze serpent lifted up on a pole so that all the camp can see. 
Whoever looks to the serpent will be healed and live. Now, to the darkened mind, this seems foolish. What would be so special about this bronze symbol? What would be so healing about it? And even more so, why a serpent? Isn't a serpent the symbol of why all this evil started in the first place? Isn't the serpent the place where the temptation first began that threw us into darkness? And here God is telling us to look at the very evil that began all this. God does want them to look at the thing which is evil. He wants them to look at the ugliness that is behind it, to see in that that God has to do something greater. He has to be greater than the evil and greater than the ugliness. And so he puts up that serpent as he puts the serpent to death. The serpent in the wilderness is symbolic of how God will deal with all evil. In the TV series called The Chosen, they retell the story of Nicodemus. And in the episode where they picture Nicodemus, it begins in the 13th century BC with Moses. You have Moses banging on this bronze serpent, hammering it out. And in walks Joshua. Now, in a series like this, it's more devotional in nature, so they're going to bring out some dialogue that's not in the Bible, but I can imagine this conversation when Moses says, we're going to be leaving camp tomorrow. And Joshua says, how could we leave camp? Everyone's sick. Everyone's dying. We've got to do something. And Moses says, I will put up this bronze serpent, and whoever looks at it will be healed. Joshua says, how could we move on if the people are too sick to walk? And Moses says, after today, the only Israelites too sick to walk will be those who choose to remain so. Jesus lifted up, was lifted up for all the world to see. He's the one who became the curse of the serpent, who bears our sins and sicknesses, All who look to him will be saved. In the paradox of the gospel, the very worst thing, the thing that is most ugly that the world could ever conjure, the crucifixion of God's son, becomes the work of God's kingdom. So that when you look to that ugliness and darkness, you see the very rescue and healing of our souls. The only one who remains sick or die will be those who refuse to look. Those who remain in darkness because their works are evil and they're holding on to them. But for those who do believe, for those who do step into the light, for those who look to Jesus, they will see the kingdom. They will be born from above. They will be given the spirit and begin to walk in the light. The riddle that we began with, it cannot be seen, cannot be felt, cannot be heard, cannot be smelled. 
It lies behind stars and under hills, and empty holes it fills. It comes first and follows after, ends life and kills laughter. Have anyone figured out what it is? Very good. The answer is darkness. Jesus has come to cast out the darkness deep within the darkest caves of our souls, to bring it out into the light, to take away the evil creature that's trying to get us fooled and kill us, to put the serpent to death, and he's lifted up so that all of us can see as we look to the cross and are saved. Amen.